Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind, the show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. I'm your host, Colette Rausch, and today we are talking about social healing and reconciliation following communal violence and trauma. Our guest is Dr. Tekla Namachanja Wanjala who is a globally recognized peace practitioner with over 30 years of experience in the areas of transitional justice, conflict transformation, social healing, and reconciliation. She is the founder of the Shalom Center for Counseling and Development, a non-governmental organization in Kenya committed to creating, holding, and transforming trusted spaces for healing and reconciliation in communities. And she is also the former chairperson of Kenya's Truth, Justice, and Reconciliation Commission. She holds a PhD in Peace and Conflict Studies from Masen Miluro University of Science and Technology, and is the winner of the 2019 Peace Builder of the Year, awarded by Eastern Mennonite University's Center for Justice and Peace. And she was also a nominee as one of the thousand women who are collectively nominated for the 2005 Nobel Peace Prize. Welcome, Tekla, to the Think Peace podcast. I'm so happy that you're with us here today. It's my pleasure, Colette. So I'm very excited to be speaking with you and talk about your work in the social healing realm. Mm -hmm. And I know you've had a lot of experiences working with communities who have suffered with war and traumatic events, and also working on reconciliation efforts in Kenya. So I'm very interested in how you got involved in this work. What led you to be interested and so engaged in social healing? Thank you, Colette. Actually, when I grew up, I grew up in a village, one of the poorest villages in Kenya, in Bungoma. And as I watched women struggling, I promised myself that one day I work so hard so that I can support a program of women development. So when I finished my high school, I sought for a course that will enable me to go back to the community to support these women. I took a course in social development work. I graduated in 1991. And the first place I took my papers to seek for employment was in one of the Catholic churches where I was living, the Catholic Diocese of Mombasa. So I was invited and I was looking forward to going to support women. But instead, 1991 was the period that uh, Somalia disintegrated. And Kenya hosted over 30,000 Somali refugees in the coastal region in a camp of refugees called Wutange Refugee Camp. And so when I joined, when I went in the church, I was put in a Red Cross vehicle and I was given, I was taken to the camp one enclosed area for 30,000. So that is what changed my course. Because of war, I could not support women in development. 
I ended up in a refugee camp supporting children under five with supplementary feeding, supporting the aged people above 60 with supplementary and also teaching Kiswahili, a language spoken in East Africa to the under five kids so that they will be able to communicate with their locals. And it was while I was working in this refugee camp that I came face to face with the ugly impact of violence, the traumatic impact of violence to communities. Because in one of our meetings in the school where I was teaching, we also had Somalia teachers and I was very close to one of them. And one time when I was in the staff room, I just put one question to her. It's very normal in Africa to find from your friend how many children they have. So I put a question to this female teacher asking her how many children she had. And instead of answering, she burst into mourning, into crying. It was a shock, an innocent question. She left in the staff room and then one of the teachers from Somalia, she told me that she is crying because on their way to Kenya, they used a boat through the Indian Ocean and the boat, the boat capsized and she lost all her family members. It's just this child that I was inquiring. And uh, so then I realized, wow, that is what it does. That is what trauma does. And then I also remember each time I went in a classroom to teach these children, they looked at me with a lot of hate in their eyes. I thought that maybe because I'm not a Somalia, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not wearing appropriately. But I realized later that the children that we had forced to sit on mats in a makeshift school made of coconut leaves, they are children from posh families back home. They were in good schools back home. They were being driven to schools in posh vehicles. And here we were forcing them to sit on mats. So I was the face of their pain. So that is how my course changed from doing development work to supporting uh, refugees. So that was in 1991. Then in 1992, my husband got transferred from the coastal area where I was working and so then I was forced to leave that area to come to my own county of Bungoma. Again, as in the coastal area, I presented my papers to my Catholic Diocese of Bungoma, where this broadcast is taking place. This is the office I requested for just for us to have this dialogue. And again, I was asked to report the following day. So you're when I that's where you yeah. are right now today, where we're speaking. Yes, that is okay. where we are so many years back. Yeah. So that was way back in 1992. So again, Colette, I was asked to present my papers and I passed the interview. Now, coming to report again, instead of being taken to the field to work with women, 
I was given, I was put in the vehicle and taken around. Now, Kenya in 1992 is when we also had our first ethnic clashes related to general elections. And out of these clashes, uh, we lost almost a thousand. We lost actually over a thousand people and we had 300,000 people displaced from their homes, from their original homes. Now, unlike in the Somalia situation where they were put in one refugee camp, the IDPs were spread in the whole of the diocese. And I took care of 40,000 of them as a relief and rehabilitation coordinator. They so, were spread, yes. I'm sorry, I just wanted to ask you a question. Could you give a little bit of a background you talked about the IDPs, the internally displaced people. These were people from Kenya. Um, yes. Could you talk to us a little bit about the ethnic conflict to provide a little bit of context for people who may not be aware of that conflict mm -hmm. in, in Kenya? Okay. For a long time after independence of Kenya in 1963, Kenya adopted a one-party uh, sort of governance. And at one point, Kenyans thought that this one-party system was not working for them. It was sort of dictatorial. And they pushed for the change of system from one party to multi-party to open up spaces for, so that many parties can compete during election. Now, the pushing for multi-partyism was done by people from the opposition. But the people who are in the ruling party resisted that. And instead of supporting the multi-party, they sort of supported a federal system that uh, was sort of did not work for everybody. A federal system meaning that Kenya can be divided into sections, into regions. And this sort of region was in a way that uh, if you did not belong to that particular region, then you are not supposed to, 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 to vote in that region. And so politicians, even after we pushed and multipartism was adopted in 1991, some politicians, especially from the ruling party, incited their communities to cause conflict among cosmopolitan areas, meaning that if you did not originate from this place, then you don't belong here. And they used that to cause violence. So we had ethnic clashes along, although they used the land as an entry point to incite uh, communities to fight each other. And this was done so that uh, people from the opposition could be evicted in some sections so that when it comes to voting, they could not vote because by then, according to the law, you could only vote where you were born or where you registered at that particular time. So when it came to voting, many people had been displaced and they were not able to vote. So the ruling party maintained the status quo. So that was the genesis of the violence. So it was used, the um, ethnic aspect mm -hmm. was being used by political actors in order to yes. solidify their own power and create violence through you know, political violence based yeah. on ethnicity. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So 
Okay, is that understood now? Yes, thank, thank you. And so you were talking about now you were being called to serve by the diocese to work with Kenyans now, and you talked about the internally displaced people that you were working with. Yes. So I was the, given the position of um, the coordinator for relief and rehabilitation for victims of ethnic clashes. And uh, in the, the diocese hosted over 40,000 uh, victims. They were spread all over on market centers, in church halls, in churches. They were converted into uh, homes for the IDPs. So again, I started working on relief and rehabilitation instead of development. And it was while I was working for the IDPs that again, I came across very traumatic uh, experiences with uh, my basic, by then I only had a diploma in social development. And so with my basic knowledge of counseling, I realized that some of the people I was serving may have been affected. So whenever we went into the field to provide relief, I used to create space, especially for women, just for us to get together. And I could just ask them, let's talk about these things. How was your experience in your home? How were you impacted by the conflict? How are you living in the camps? And we talked, we prayed, we sang together. And then they shared some of the very traumatic stories. For example, a woman shared how while she was running away, she fell on her child. The child died and now she blamed herself for killing the child. Another one shared how while the clashes started, she had just lost a son and everybody ran away and left her with the body in the house. So she made use of the night to dig a shallow grave to bury her son single-handedly. And her trauma was that the grave she dug was so shallow that she feared that her son may have been exhumed and eaten by the dogs. But one of the stories that uh, made me go down later with secondary trauma, which I didn't realize, was a story of an old woman. She was around, I think, 75. Cecilia must have been around 75. So when I was conducting registration in one of the camps, Sirisha camp, I saw an old woman coming and dragging an equally old man. And she came and presented to me two pants and she told me, my grandchild, this is all I'm left with. These pants, one for me and one for my husband. These two blankets, one for me and one for my husband. These two plates, one for me and one for my husband. And Colette, as I looked at this woman, I admired the love she had for her husband. And I wondered, surely, at this age, by then I was a young woman. I was only having my second, I had the pregnancy of my second born. And uh, so I admired the way they were living together, supporting each other. And then one day, when we, the, the Catholic Church set up one of the mission hostels for referral. And so 
Whenever we found sick people in the camps, we took them to the hospital. And two weeks after I encountered Cecilia, I was taking sick people in the hospital and I saw a crowd of children following an old lady. I was curious and I saw it was Cecilia. So I went to her and I pulled her away and I asked her, Cecilia, what is it? She told me my grandchild, my husband has just left me. I did not comprehend. Then later I realized that actually the husband had died. I forgot myself. I just started screaming and I, I didn't know what was happening to me. But anyway, we went ahead and buried Cecilia's husband, but I didn't realize as a caregiver that the stories I was listening, what I was observing, what I was soaking as a sponge was affected, had affected me. Then I left the situation. I worked for the IDPs, Can of I course. One, yes. one question, that, that was such mm -hmm. a profound um, experience that you, you mentioned, profound and deeply affecting those involved. And mm -hmm. then you mentioned secondary trauma, how it affected mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. and the caregivers, how, mm -hmm. how when you're giving care that it can affect you. And you mentioned the term secondary trauma. Sometimes, you know, as you know, that can be called vicarious trauma that even if it didn't, yeah. if we didn't personally experience it, but witnessing and being, mm -hmm. being in, hearing stories mm -hmm. can affect us in ways that are, are very um, difficult. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to acknowledge acknowledge mm -hmm. that, that what you had talked about with secondary yeah. trauma. Yeah, so thank you. And I didn't know by then that I was suffering from secondary trauma. Mm -hmm. The most unfortunate thing about traumatic experience is that when you are impacted, you behave in a way, you think yourself you are behaving in a normal way, you don't realize you are behaving that way because of traumatic experience. For example, when I was going about in the camps, I came across a woman who was trying to breastfeed her baby, but because she was not having enough food, she was not lactating. And the child was trying to breastfeed and hitting the chest of the mother. And the mother just looked aside and tears rolled down her cheeks. At that time, I had a six month old uh, baby girl. And when I went back home, I refused to, bre to breastfeed her. And my thinking was, ah, she stayed at home. She had some porridge. She did not deserve any milk compared to the children in the field. You see, that is behavior that I didn't realize until when I came to learn about trauma, how you behave when you are traumatized. So even as much as, as a caregiver and other caregivers, I was affected. I did not know until when I left the scene uh, in 19, I think it was 1997, uh, 1996, after getting frustrated with the relief, I initiated uh, community meetings where the groups in, 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 in conflict had dialogue 
that led to their resettlement, the IDPs being resettled back to their homes. Then I sought for employment at the national level in an institution called Peace and Development Network. This was now a national umbrella that supported peace, relief, human rights, and development. And while at PeaceNet in 1997, I was offered a chance to go to South Africa to advance my training. Actually, that was the first time that I entered into a course and learned about uh, conflict transformation. What I was doing, bringing communities together, discussing, then taking them to their homes, bringing their neighbors together to discuss, and then later accepting to live together. That one I was doing using my social work skills. But I later learned that I was doing actually mediation, shuttle mediation and all that. Exactly. So you, were, you were doing what was came natural to you, understanding the yes. circumstances uh -huh. of the people. And then you came to learn, oh, there's mm -hmm. a, there's a field and a theory around what I've been doing intuitively, yeah. naturally. Yeah. Yes. So when I was, when I joined PeaceNet, at least I was offered a, an opportunity to go to South Africa to attend a course in conflict transformation, a six weeks course. And because it was June, when it reached June 16th, during a refugee day, we invited refugees to come and have a meal with us, to share with us. So after preparing everything, we sat down to start sharing. And then one young lady from the Democratic Republic of Congo shared a story how she left DRC with her husband. She was now in South Africa. Her husband had died and she was being denied asylum. I almost screamed when I heard that I stopped seeing a young woman. I started seeing an old woman in the name of Cecilia. And we were seated in the circle, sharing, collect what I did. I just screamed and ran out. I didn't know what was happening to me. I went and buried myself in my bed, in my pillow. And one of the duties, the late Deca Abraham, may God rest her soul in internal peace. She was a Kenyan, she knew my work and she realized what had happened. I thought actually I was going mad, but she came to me and she told me, she reassured me, Tekla, it's okay. What you are experiencing is because of the work you did years back, just stay there, let the sins come, they will go. So I was just experiencing sin after sin. And then later she told me, let her continue whenever they come, continue documenting. So I was having flashbacks, but by then in Africa, we didn't know what trauma is. Even other caregivers, all those people on that course, actually they were shocked also. Some laughed because they didn't realize what was happening to me. What a, so, what a gift, what a gift she was. She that was. She was there mm -hmm. to be able to mm -hmm. Support mm -hmm. that and explain that your response was mm -hmm. a natural reaction to 
traumatic events and your own system mm -hmm. responding to that. Yes. Actually, she helped me. Mm -hmm. And so it was at that point that I realized, although I've been doing peace building, so when I got a chance to go for further studies, to go for my master's at Eastern Mennonite University, to take a, an MA in conflict transformation. I took two courses on trauma healing. I even don't know how they allowed me. Mm -hmm. And again, I was not satisfied. And I asked them, can you allow me to do an independent course to learn how trauma is handled from my community from African perspective? And I really appreciate professors at Eastern Mennonite University are very practical. So they allowed me to do an independent course. And what I did was just even to reflect in my own family, when we lost a baby boy, how did my mom handle that? How did the neighbors handle that? What was it? What was it they did that helped her to deal with her? traumatic experience. I reflected how about women. We go through very difficult lives. We don't have counseling centers. How do we deal with our stresses? And it was very, very helpful because then I realized that trauma healing, dealing with stresses is inbuilt into our own culture, into our own tradition, the way we mourn, the way the rituals are carried away. And so I was so passionate about the care for the caregivers that when I finished my master's and I came back to Kenya, I enrolled myself again in a PhD program. Of course, after working in other areas, doing peace building, conflict transformation, I was still very passionate about trauma of the caregivers, of the victims, of the perpetrators. So when I enrolled in a, a PhD, I did peace and conflict. The PhD is called peace and conflict studies. But for my thesis, I focused on traditional mechanisms of trauma healing. To that point, you, you said something very interesting. When mm -hmm. you were taking trauma courses, you were not satisfied in that it did not quite reflect what was the lived experience that mm -hmm. you had experienced and what you felt in the culture um, in which you were living in Kenya. So mm -hmm. I would love for you to talk a little bit about that. And I'm sure that's also what formed you with going into mm -hmm. your PhD to really hone in on the traditional and the cultural aspects. What, mm -hmm. what did you find dissatisfying as to how trauma is sometimes understood mm -hmm. in that is not necessarily directly relevant to all cultures, but sometimes becomes conveyed as relevant to all, if that question mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. An African, how trauma is understood. For example, the Western world is very individualistic. For us, the type of trauma that we've experienced is sort of social trauma. Most of it is mainly social trauma, even if it's rape, 
you'll realize it could be maybe because of domestic violence or because of the ethnic clashes, the type of trauma that sent me down into uh, to have vicarious traumatization. So one of the issues I looked at were how does the issue of we feeling the close community that we have affect the way one is traumatized. For example, when I'm in a group, when my family is traumatized, I'm also, mine, it could be so much specific to the, this individual, but it affects me also because of the closeness in the community. Somebody's trauma is also my trauma. It's not just her who is not able to breastfeed. But when I look at that, I also empathize and I get traumatized. And then you look at the way trauma, traumatic events, traumatic symptoms are interpreted. For example, I looked at the issue of how does, what is the role of, for example, traditional healers in interpreting traumatic events? Because when you list the interveners in trauma from the African perspective, you cannot leave out the traditional healers. They are the ones who will look at that behavior and tell you that person is affected mentally. And again, for us, when you are traumatized, we don't demarcate mm -hmm. that it's your head that is affected. No, what affects your head affects your emotion, it affects you physically, it affects your relationship, it affects the whole community. And then when I did this research, especially among the perpetrators, what traumatizes them is not what traumatizes the victims. For the perpetrators, according to the African tradition and norms, you are not supposed to shed blood. When you shed blood, you affect the ancestors, you affect the living dead, you define the soil. So when it comes to trauma healing, you have to find ways. When this young man who tells me that I was, I was a perpetrator, I shed blood, but I'm traumatized because I did not get a money to buy a right animal to conduct the cleansing. For example, if blood has been shed, you can cancel, you can make so many counseling sessions, but unless ritual is done where an animal is slaughtered to shed blood, it's only the blood of animal that can cleanse the blood of a human being. So those are the issues that uh, I looked at it. And then- So when you're- the I'm, yes. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm so curious. So when you're talking mm -hmm. about traditional healing- mm -hmm. Yes. You were mentioning traditional healing it sounds like two dimensions. One, the dimension of the whole person, not just the head, but mm -hmm. the whole person and their relationships and their mm -hmm. physical well-being, their community. And then mm -hmm. there's another dimension where you talked about it's not just counseling or talking through a traditional mm -hmm. Western-based therapy that mm -hmm. may be perceived as a traditional Western way. But that mm -hmm. traditional healing, are you also talking about ritual and other yes. ways of healing? It's a broader scope of what it takes and means to heal. Is that mm -hmm. correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. The type of 
intervention depends on the type of the trauma that one has experienced. For example, in the case of rape, yes, their individual counseling can come in, it can help. But where my house was burned, and because of the way feeling, because of our strong Ubuntu community raising, I don't want to be sent in a hole, in a, in, in a secure place, in a lonely place to be cancelled. I want to be cancelled in front of the rest of the community members so that when I share what happened, they affirm what happened. They empathize with me what happened. When I shed my tears, they are there to hold me, to feel with me and even in front of the perpetrators so that they can be also ashamed of what happened. That is what I mean, yeah. So ritual is very key, especially where blood has been uh, shed because we believe that when you shed blood, you don't just annoy the living, but you also annoy the living dead. And because of that action, the whole community can receive punishment in a form of a calamity. And for example, when the youths are engaged in the oathing process before they engage into violence, that oathing process has to be undone and it can be only be undone through a ritual. So, and even the soy, the ritual has also, the soy also, because we shed blood, the blood affects the soil, the soil also has to be cleansed. So I realized cleansing is very key, especially where blood has been uh, shed. Rituals are very key. Traditional healers are very key in supporting the intervention uh, methods. The whole issue of the we feeling, community feeling is very important in trauma healing. Yeah, and it was very interesting when you, um, the journey that you've talked about so far, Yes. We went in and ex basically into mm -hmm. the world and experiencing mm -hmm. um, through the development lens, the human dimension that you were talking yes. about and the traumatic experiences in communities. And mm -hmm. then all of your experiences were leading before then you went to study more about it. So you experienced mm -hmm. and lived it. You had all this lived experience and mm -hmm. then went to study it further. Yes. So with your PhD, now you're honing, you were honing in more specifically in traditional ways of healing. Um, yes. Social healing mm -hmm. and trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I did, after my PhD, even before I completed my PhD, it, I had just enrolled in it when um, Kenya formed a Truth Justice and Reconciliation Commission. And I applied to be a part of this commission. I had just come back from Eastern Mennonite University where I had done courses on trauma healing, peace building, restorative justice. And the reason why I wanted to be part of uh, the truth seeking process, I realized that uh, the, with the experience we've had, there is always often a stress on retributive justice where we champion prosecution and all that. I wanted to come on it to focus more on reconciliation and restorative justice because my work at the community level, I realized that at times the line between the perpetrator and the victim at the community level is so blurred. 
and retributive justice per se could not support my community in getting the justices they need and um, the healing and reconciliation. So I was part of the truth seeking uh, process. And when it came to conflict, dealing with the issues of tension and ethnic clashes, they selected uh, Mount Elgon, Elgon region, the region that has really suffered severe conflict that drew in a militia operation and the government military operation. Where, so, in, where in Kenya is that located? If you could just describe the area in Kenya. Mm -hmm. Mount Elgon is uh, in western part of Kenya. It's in Bungoma Diocese, the diocese where I'm talking to you now. That is where I am. It's on the border of Kenya and Uganda. So after the truth-seeking process, and after we narrowed the issues of tension, we investigated a lot. Of course, the, the TGRC looked at uh, historical injustices and gross violation of human rights from independence in 1963 to 2008. 2008, why 2008 is during, I think this was the fourth multi-party general election. Now we had more severe violence, more than the first one I had narrated in 1992, that drew in the intervention of the EGAD, of, of the, the mediators from outside leaders, the eminent leaders from, from Africa led by the late uh, His Excellency Kofi Annan. And out of that mediation process, a peace agreement was signed with agreements on a number of things to be done to ensure that we don't continue having conflicts. And one of them, they proposed setting up a Truth, Justice and Reconciliation Commission to investigate historical injustices and gross violation of human rights. And so I applied, I was accepted. So I worked on this truth-seeking process initially as a, a commissioner, but we had conflicts within the leadership that made the vice chair who was a lady to resign. So when she resigned, I took over and uh, the conflicts continued until the chair of the commission stepped aside and when he stepped aside, I took over to run the commission to the end. And later, I, I wondered how was it possible, a rural woman like me, to do what I did until the commission completed its work. I realized is that it's the pain mm -hmm. that I experienced with women. For me, I saw this commission as a space where we shall get a chance to come and share our experience, to come and tell the world how we had suffered out of the violence. So that gave me the zeal to continue to the end. So when I finished the report, we finished in 2013, we submitted the report to the president. The president submitted it to parliament. Parliament was supposed to debate it and then sanction the implementation of the recommendations of the, the report. But up to now, the report is still stuck in parliament. And I was initially, I was so frustrated because it was a good report. If we implemented, we could prevent violence. And because some of the recommendation touched on 
reparation for the victim. So I was so frustrated since 2013 when we submitted the report. But then in um, 2018, I got a chance to go to uh, German Robert Bush Academy for a fellowship. And while there, I took about 10 months to reflect, to do some basic research to find out why truth commission reports, why nations spend a lot of money setting up truth commission reports. They cause a lot of expectation on the part of the victims. And when the report comes out, they are not able to implement. Then I realized that it's not just Kenya. No nation is ready to face its ugly past. And for example, for the Kenyan report, it's the parliament, parliamentarians, politicians who are supposed to sanction. But when you look at what we investigated, there are politicians who are involved heavily in some of the issues that uh, we investigated. So they are not ready. So the report is stuck in parliament. Implementation has not taken place. It is sad that some victims died. We had promised a lot through this process. They died without. We set the nation in a mode of community dialogue. No dialogue was taking place. We re-traumatized community members. No trauma healing was taking place. And so it was while I was in Berlin, after I learned from the experience of Canada, of Sierra Leone, of South Africa, and I realized that I can continue mourning why the report is not being implemented, or I can go back to the community and do something. And that is how now I'm back to Mount Elgon doing social healing, using the experience that I had, using the outcome of my thesis, using traditional mechanisms to support communities and using social healing as an entry point. So this is the work I'm engaged in now, up to now, where we go to the community, just organize sub-meetings, we call them social healing circle meetings. We've developed the training materials that are very simple, where we use portraits, where you use story taking, I mean storytelling, where you use stories from the Bible, where community members look at them, they reflect on their own situation, and then we start a dialogue around the clashes, the psychological impact, the physical impact, what are the symptoms of trauma? When you are traumatized, how do you behave? And uh, what are we explore our own coping mechanisms and uh, how to move on? Actually, the purpose of this is to help our aim. And I'm doing this through a small organization that I founded while I was working in 1992 on the first ethnic clashes called Shalom Center for counseling and development. It's this humble organization that has enabled me to go back to the community to do what I feel passionate. And the reason why now I'm focusing on trauma healing, research has shown that uh, there is a relationship between unhealed trauma and a community being stuck in vicious circles of violence.
So we are using this, hoping that we deal with our inner wounds. And once we deal with our inner wounds that comes with a lot of anger, then communities or people may find space to let go, to acknowledge, to forgive, then we can embrace and start the journey of reconciliation. Tekla, that is very powerful and transformative work that you are engaged in. And there were a couple things you mentioned earlier that I wonder how they come into play. So in your in the current work that you're doing, you talked about there's a fine line or the lines are blurred between perpetrators and what somebody or, or victims or individuals engaged. How does that play out in your work now in your in the circles and the community engagement? And are you working with some who could be deemed as perpetrators and some who are victims of those perpetrators? How do you navigate that very difficult um, situation? I will use a case to help you, uh, to help answer this question. In September, for our first circle meeting, we had a circle of 20 women, all of them widows, and we don't discriminate. What, when we create the space, we just want widows. We don't explain the nature of widowhood or how one got to be a widow. So we just create space in an, an area. We've identified epicenters, the areas that were most affected. So we held this meeting of that widows and we realized during breaks when we are taking tea, one widow used to sit alone and others, you could see others in groups. So the way we facilitate the dialogue, we start with just uh, understanding the impact, what is trauma, what were the sources of trauma in this community. And then every morning we give space for people just to share. That space, we call it a, a healing space where they just talk from the bottom of their hearts how they experienced, what impacted them. Then on the third day, it's when we talk about forgiveness and letting go. And we usually use the story of Joseph in the Bible, how he was sold by his brothers, but later how he impressed them and let go. And it was while we were, talk, we were tackling the story of Moses that one woman stood up and said, I, I have an apology to make. When we started from Monday, I've not been wanting to see this particular woman. This particular woman since 2000, and the, this, the conflict we are tackling was 2006, 2008. And she said, since 2008, I've not been greeting this woman because it's the husband that killed my husband. Now, during this conflict, we had a militia group and the militia group, people in the militia group had different roles. The role of this, the husband of this particular woman was the one who was in charge of killing people who were found to be on the wrong or people the militia group wanted to kill. And then the rest of the women, and then they all said, actually, we are very sorry. We have been isolating this sister of ours. 
But is it really true that she knew what the husband was do doing since the dialogue ensued? Then we learned later that the husband also died a very horrible death. Now, when, after the clashes, when he came in the community, the community members got hold of him, a crowd formed, he was matched with songs, and he was killed at his own home in front of his children. And then they stood up, they started sing, singing, they all went, we all went, and we embraced this woman. And then the woman, when it came to her case to share, she said that actually, when I was invited on Saturday or to, in, to come for this meeting, when I received the invitation to come for this meeting, I had decided to commit suicide because I didn't want to face those questions anymore. But this meeting has saved me. So in the meeting, we have the perpetrators, and we have the victims. So, and the meetings, uh, we, 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 we narrow down to three groups, the widows, the youths, and the elders. So you will see in among the elders, for example, somebody is seated next to a neighbor whose son maybe was responsible for the killing of the wife or for the killing of the son. Now, when it came for the, the elders, there was one elder who kept on asking, what is this meeting? Why did you invite me? Am I a victim or am I a perpetrator? And the question which we gave him is, this is just space for us to deal with our past so that we can move on. What we need is for us to move on. But they ask that question, and then you let them. During the morning when we start, where we are reflecting, and in the evening we also reflect. Then we realize for the elders, he was asking one of the men in that meeting, he had gone for logging in the forest, and one of the men uh, in the meeting was in charge of the forest. And I think he made this particular man receive punishment. That was long time ago. He had never forgiven this fellow man who is even a relative. Then at the last, he came up and he said, I'm asking this because this person, this is what he did to me. This other person was shocked because he had forgotten about that. And then now this other man comes and kneels down and asks for forgiveness. So we also encourage acknowledgement and asking for forgiveness so that they move on to start the journey of reconciliation. So a long story to answer your question. We tell them, we don't know. We could be victims, we could be perpetrators, we could be both. But our focus here is to heal our inner wounds so that we can all move on. We cannot continue looking at the past. We have to move on. And one of the symbols, one of the analog I usually use that I found it very powerful and it helps them to move on is that I consider holding on that hatred to being beaten by a snake. And the question I usually ask them, when you are beaten by a snake, 
Do you have to run after that snake or do you have to take care of the wound so that the venom does not spread in the body and kill you? Then they say, you have to take care. Then we say, that is what it is. That bitterness that we are holding, the grudges that we are holding, you cannot move on. You cannot get involved in development. Unfortunately, we are neighbors and we do not choose our neighbors, whether we like it or not. It's not like in America. I like Americans. One time you are in this state, the next time you are elsewhere. But for us, land is cultural. Where you are born is where you will die, is where your ancestors died, is where you will be. So do we have to move on? If we have to move on, then let us, let the bitterness go. There was something um, that really struck me in your, your discussion of the process in that two things. One, the past, unless it is resolved, is in the present mm-hmm. and can cause cycles of violence. At the mm-hmm. same time, you're not asking people to just ignore it and to forgive and let it go. Mm-mm. You're providing a process of healing, Mm -hmm. a community based with Mm -hmm. the community and the human connection as Mm. a, as a way of healing together. Yeah. And we use, we usually use, um, when we are discuss describing our traumatic experience, we usually use a basket. Many people can relate to a basket. We have a portrait. We use big flippers a portrait of a a good basket. And we just ask them, what are you seeing? It's a basket. And in a basket, there are fruits, there are bananas, there are oranges, there are mangoes. What? And then we ask, how do we use the basket? Of course, going to the market. And then we bring another portrait of a torn basket where fruits are falling. And then we ask, what are you seeing? It's a torn a basket, what may have caused the torn basket? Maybe it's eaten by a rat, it's eaten by a goat, it's overused, several answers. And then we ask them, if you have to go to the market, which basket will you choose? Of course, they choose the farm basket. And then discussion starts around that. If our life was this basket, this torn, is it farm or is it a torn? And they will say it's torn. And then we discuss the violence, the causes. You see, we are dealing with the basket. And then moving forward, do we have, this is our only basket. We cannot throw it away. We have to start mending this basket. What do we have to do to mend this basket? We mend our individual basket, then we mend our community basket. So the past is very important. The past has to be acknowledged. And the youths who are involved, especially in the violence, have come forward and have said, yes, we did the wrong things. Some have gone down to their knees asking for forgiveness. Elders have acknowledged we have let the situation to lose. We are not playing our role as elders, custodians of peace, custodians of rules and regulations. How can we pick up? And then... Apart from healing, we are also creating infrastructure for future peace. We are creating social safety net for support. And women are very good in this. At each meeting, they have been selecting leaders, at least five leaders. 
so that in future, if we have to go back, we have to go back to these leaders. Women have been proposing, now getting together, dealing with their past, mending their individual basket, but also mending their own basket as a group. And they are supporting, forming groups, supporting each other, visiting each other, starting small development because they are widows and they cannot, nobody cares about them. And we encourage them to start taking care of each other. So the past is important. We have to discuss it if we don't have to go back, but have a vision for all of us together. Right. And they're building, as you say, stronger baskets. Mm -hmm. So for the future, mm -hmm. there's more resilience in their baskets and also potentially preventing violence or healing should that occur again. Yes. And I, there was linking um, the Truth Commission work that oftentimes mm -hmm. Truth Commissions fall under the transitional justice realm, mm -hmm. transitional justice as you know, broadly speaking, designed to address past abuses, human rights abuses, learn what happened, bring the truth forward so there's a record, and with the goal so that you will not have that type of harm in the future. And then, so sometimes there's tension within that work, and you, you hit it right on the head when you said restorative mm -hmm. and retributive. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in your experience when sometimes through transitional justice or truth commissions that may have recommendations as to what needs to be done, accountability is, is, and justice are often very important components, holding accountable those who committed the harm. How mm -hmm. in your experience, in your studies and practice, do we, I'm not going to say balance, but how do we hold the two concepts of retribution and accountability with the same or at the same time the need for healing and forgiveness and reconciliation when we're working in these processes what what are your thoughts um, in those realms i think um what for me what has not been happening right for me is dumping everything there are various mechanisms of dealing with the past preparation reconciliation, we have other mechanisms, the international courts, there is provision for other courts that are enhanced by international mechanisms. But I think the experience we've had, especially the experience we had in Kenya is dumping everything in one basket. We were supposed to recommend prostitution. We are supposed to comment restoration. We are supposed to comment reparation. We are supposed to come up with a mechanism for reconciliation. I think for me, that is where the problem was. And they call it true justice and reconciliation commission. And the justice component is what affected our report. That is why the report is not being implemented because we recommended further investigation that may lead to prostitution Yet we have leaders that we recommended still in power. There are politicians still there. So for me, I will go the John Paul Lederach's pyramid way. We have pyramid of actions and actors. At, the, at this top level, at the peak, 
of course, those are the people may, who may hold the highest responsibility in whatever may happen. They can have another mechanism. For example, in Kenya, they had the Hague process that never happened. Maybe the next tire, they will have had courts, even hybrid courts to deal with that. Yeah, other people, the next tire who hold the next highest responsibility, the ringleaders to be dealt with there. At the community level, there is where restorative justice happens. And I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it. I'm able to tell when I see a young person going down to knees and he says, how can I help this family? I was responsible. I'm the one who pointed out to this woman so that this woman was killed. Though I was not the one who killed, but I'm responsible. That acknowledgement, that shame, shame is accountability. Acknowledgement is accountability. And the fact that now they are wondering, how can we as a community help this widow, help this old man who is not even able to go fetch water, to go fetch for fire, to support himself. So that shame coming, you know, it's what I've realized it's easy. Even when we are sharing in, in this meeting, it's easy for that, for a victim. But for a perpetrator, it's very painful. And for me, that is another form of accountability. Yeah, it, it may not be what is in a narrow definition of, I'm a former prosecutor, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it may yeah. be in the formal court mm -hmm. judgment, but mm -hmm. in a broader sense of accountability to community, to self. Yes, to self, yes. And to community and those you've affected is what you're mm -hmm. talking about. It's a broader definition, but accountability mm -hmm. nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And that is why we, I think when it comes to issues of accountability, and that is maybe why truth commissions are failing where they are, like in our areas, can they let the communities themselves define what accountability to them? Of course, there is crime against humanity, that one we cannot, right. but where others can, the community members themselves, come up and say for accountability, this is our understanding, this is what we need. Because of this bloodness of the role between the perpetrator and the, vic the victim. Because before uh, a mechanism like a truth seeking process set up, for example, in Kenya, we will have had layers, vicious circles of clashes. Today, this year, this community, is a, in fact, for Kenya again, it's not individual, it's communities, the blanket condemnation. This time it's this community that is a victim. Then they realize next set of general elections, let us also arm ourselves. The victims becomes the perpetrators. The perpetrators, they keep on swinging from victimhood to perpetration. So when it comes to accountability there, it just gets blood there. It's been such an honor to be able to mm -hmm. share this time with you. And I would love to ask you, what is your vision for your work moving forward? And what final thoughts do you have mm -hmm. related to social healing and the power of the community um, transformation work that you are doing? 
I have a PhD. As a Kenyan woman, I've been privileged to hold one of the highest positions in a government institution, a commissioner, a vice chair, an acting chair. It was an honor. But I'm back to where I started, where I was being led by the situation. When I entered into, when I started the first work among the IDPs, please help us understand where you left and how you left your homes. Had a series, and then they sent me to their neighbors, their perpetrators. Please go and find out what happened. Why is it that one day they just turned against us? I went, started with the women, they said, no, it's not us. To the men, they said, yes, it was us, but now the situation is with the youths. Then I got the youths to the negotiating table. And then they said, yes, these were the reasons, one, two, three, four, five. But we are ready now to discuss, bring them. Then I could go to the IDPs, bring them, have heated, heated exchanges, one day, three days, until they accepted to reconcile and move, invite their neighbors back home. That is where I am because I'm bored with peace building work being reduced into boardroom work. What would I be doing in Nairobi, the capital? The capital headquarter of Kenya in that chair, in that big office, when we have the victims on the ground. This is what the vision I have about peace builders. Let, let us go back to the communities where the pain is, where the conflicting is, but not from one boardroom training to the next boardroom, from one analysis to the other, leaving out the owners of the processes we are doing. Each time I finish a circle meeting, I'm told this is just what you've done is just a drop in the ocean. Even within this community, I've just singled down one community. Today, somebody asked me, when are you coming to the whole of Rift Valley? So my vision is we are starting in this small place. We are starting to understand where we are, heal the inner wounds. From the inner wounds, we are hoping that we build enough infrastructure at the community level so that when we have early warning, we have early action. Next year is election time. I'm sure donors are waiting until they see the smokes, houses burning before they come here with a lot of money. It's too late. It will be too late. What I'm doing, we are analyzing issues. The community themselves, the community members themselves, they are giving solutions. So I'm hoping that we shall get even to move from crying to start now dealing with the recommendations they have given us to prevent future conflict. And in your, you know, when you were speaking, what came to my mind is the wisdom mm -hmm. and the ability to see what needs to be done at the mm -hmm. community level and to transform that. Is, is there 
and as, as you mm -hmm. said, to come back to where you began, that mm -hmm. same wisdom that you you witnessed when you were first doing um, mm -hmm. dialogues before it had a name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know the theories and all of the important things that we learn in our studies and the names for mm -hmm. things. But when it all boils down to it, it was all there to begin with, mm -hmm. um, with the people, and, mm -hmm. and so it's it's really. It's an yeah. incredible vision you have to bring peace building back to mm -hmm. um, building it within human relationships and transforming um, the trauma and the hurt mm -hmm. and navigating it from there. It's a beautiful vision. It's true. Well, thank you so much, Tekla, for joining us with the Think Peace podcast. Um, it's been just a pleasure and, uh, and an honor to speak with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us this week for the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. Please visit our website, www.thinkpeacepodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. Be sure to tune in next week. And remember to think peace.